Welcome to Creative FM, the Creative Leaders Podcast with Ivo Gabrovich, where Ivo speaks to designers, makers, and interesting brain workers from across the world to hear their stories and discuss creativity. If you're looking for inspiration to boost your own creative business, this podcast is your own supersonic aircraft. So take your seats and enjoy the trip through the fascinating secrets of success of outstanding creatives. Bon voyage. Welcome to the second episode of Creative FM, the brand new independent and free creative makers podcast. My name is Ivo Gabovic, and in this podcast, I speak to designers, makers, and interesting brain workers from across the world to hear their stories and discuss creativity. I have provided more background information about Creative FM's intention, as well as about myself in a special introduction episode downloadable on creative.fm or iTunes. For this episode, I had the pleasure to meet the one and only Debbie Millman at last year's Typo Berlin conference. Debbie is a designer and brand expert who has worked with some of the biggest clients. She is an author, a teacher, a former president of the AIGA, as well as a podcaster. The born New Yorker has an incredible vita, but is probably best known for the Design Matters podcast, which she runs for 13 years already. If you are a listener of that, you can imagine that I was a bit nervous to interview such a podcast legend. So, of course, something actually went wrong. What happened? Due to the lack of quiet rooms at the venue, we went into the translator booth during a session break. Everything went quite well, but I only found out when I've listened to the recording that this booth caused some interfering signals from time to time. Short periods of noises every few minutes during the interview. At some point you can also hear some music in the background that came from the conference hall. But hopefully these are just some growing pains. I promise to be more careful about that in the future. But as I already brought up in the introduction episode, isn't this what creativity is about? To start something new, to make mistakes and to iterate? Exercising the creative muscle can hurt sometimes. In the interview, Debbie and I talk about Manhattan, failures, refusing once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, of course design matters and much more. We also talk briefly about Print Magazine, where Debbie was editorial and creative director until the magazine has suspended publication just a few weeks ago. At the end, I am asking her about her 10-year plan strategy for a remarkable life. A strategy that might even change your life. Aside from the following 30 minutes, I recommend to listen to her interview in the Creative Pep Talk podcast and, if you haven't done so already, to subscribe to Design Matters. Check also her six books on design and branding, as well as her Typo Berlin 2017 presentation, in which she shares her key learnings from 12 years of making design matters. I will add all links to the show notes on creative.fm. Thank you so much for listening and spending some time with me. I really, really appreciate that. Take care and keep exercising your creative muscles. Here we go. 
Debbie Millman on Creative FM. couldn't be more thrilled to sit here with Debbie Millman. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, you've been involved in the redesign of uh, Burger King and worked with brands like uh, Pepsi, Nestle uh, or Kraft. Is there any project that you are particularly proud of and why? The, the project that I'm most proud of is one that I did when I was at Sterling, and that is for the No More movement. Mm -hmm. And the No More movement is a movement to eradicate domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. And it is something that I feel has really made a difference in our culture. It has brought these issues uh, into more of a global conversation. That work led me to work with the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is an organization that Mariska Hargitay started. She's the star of the TV show Law and Order SVU. Mm -hmm. And she has an organization that is also very much against these terrible violences. And I've been working with them ever since to help reposition the organization, redesign their identity. And I am now a board member. So... The intersection of branding and a movement that I really believe in that is world-changing makes me feel like my life makes sense. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's really great. Your desperate wish to live in Manhattan made you become a graphic designer. Uh, you recently said that this was by far your biggest wish after graduation, stronger than even becoming an artist, writer, or anything else. Why was that and how turned Manhattan you into a designer? I don't know why. It, it, you know, I don't know why. That's a big mystery. It was some it was like a calling. Mm -hmm. It was something really sort of deeply wired mm -hmm. in me. I've never really been able to understand it. I just have always felt uh, as a friend of mine once put it more comfortable with the concrete under mm -hmm. my feet. And As far as um, Manhattan turning me into a designer, um, I think life turned me into a designer. <laughs> I, I really first became a designer in college when I was working as the editor of the arts and features section of my student newspaper where I learned how to do it because I had to. <laughs> There was nobody else to put the paper together. The editors were expected to put the paper together. Um, but as far as Manhattan, it's the only thing that I can tell you I've known for certain as far back as I can remember being human. Okay, okay. Is, is, is Manhattan still able to inspire you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I love a lot of other cities. I love San Francisco. I love Berlin. I love New Orleans. I love Melbourne in Australia. Um, but there's something about Manhattan that mm -hmm. always brings me back. Okay. <laughs> um, you are very open with sharing failures in your life. For instance, with a lecture titled how the worst moments of your life can turn out to be the best. Uh, I think this is a very important thing to do, yet uh, too few people feel comfortable uh, doing it uh, similarly open like you. I wonder, do you keep failing from time to time? And if so, what is the most recent uh, flop that led to a positive change in your life? 
Um, well, I feel like I, I, I don't know that I would say that I fail. I definitely still get rejected all the time, all the time. Um, I, if I, uh, submit my work to design competitions, I don't always win. I rarely win. Um, I sometimes win, which is wonderful, but I, I still get my work rejected from any number of types of situations. And I just don't let it stop me. I, I, if nothing, I'm resilient and I just keep coming back to try to change the outcome. Mm -hmm. The more I'm pushed down, the more I try to stand back up. Um, in your role as a creative director of the print magazine, uh, how do you prepare such a legendary magazine for the future? I wonder what is the most difficult challenge you are facing in this regard uh, today? The most difficult challenge is that people don't really buy magazines as much as they used to. And so it's a lot more expensive to put out a magazine if you aren't able to get enough advertisers to pay for it because you don't have quite the same uh, newsstand circulation. So I think we're in a transition where um, if there's a need for a magazine to be a paper magazine, it will continue to be a paper magazine. Um, but I think we're seeing, obviously, a lot of magazines moving to the digital. Print is still a print magazine, and I hope it stays that way forever. Um, as far as what I've been trying to do, I, I I'm just trying to breathe some new life into the magazine while still deeply respecting its heritage mm -hmm. because I've been reading it for as long as I can remember. It's a magazine that's over 70 years old. Mm -hmm. It's published everyone from Paul Rand to Steve Jobs. And I think that it is one of the magazines that you read to help you understand what it means to be a designer when you're first becoming a designer. And so we have still some of the most remarkable writers working today, Rick Pointer, Steve Heller, Seymour Quast. They all create work for every issue, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Those three awesome. names create work for every single issue. Um, I, I'm interested in also working with a lot of younger designers to breathe that new life in. We have expanded our new visual artist issue quite substantially. And in the last two years, no, I'm going to say the last three years, uh, since I took over, the new visual artist issue features covers from every new visual artist. So it really gives them an opportunity to showcase their work. Jem mm -hmm. O'Brien had the cover this year. Um, we've had some really um, remarkable new voices and we've presented those new voices to the world in a big way for the first time. And I'm really excited about that. So it's really a matter of both respecting the brand's legacy and the magazine's legacy, but also introducing the magazine to a whole new generation mm -hmm. of readers that are looking for um, a real deep understanding of, of what design is. Mm -hmm. So, so you, it seems like you really believe in the power of uh, valuable content. Also, uh, well, I hate the word content. Right. I have a real issue with the word content, and I know that everybody uses it, and so it it sort of establishes me as a fuddy-duddy by saying I hate the word content. I hate the word asset. Mm -hmm. Asset and content really were design and editorial. Mm -hmm. That's that's what that is. Okay, okay, and so I feel like it makes it diminishes the the significance. Mm -hmm. 
then it's just something that you're putting somewhere to fill a need as opposed to something that you create to spark a difference. Um, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) I don't repeat the word content anymore. I don't know. You can, it's just my own pet peeve. (laughs) So, um, for about 20 years, you worked for Sterling Brands uh, yes. before you eventually got the job as the CEO offered, right? Well, I was offered the job yeah. as CEO, but I ended up uh, declining the job. Yeah, I, I wondered. Uh, I have so much respect for that decision, actually, uh, to, to you know, rejecting this maybe once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mm. And I wonder why did you do that and, and how did you know it would be the right decision? Well... When I graduated college, I remember the moment where I made the decision to live a life that would be ultimately about creating a future of self-sufficiency for myself. Mm -hmm. And I did that because of the way I was brought up and insecurities I had about being able to take care of myself about being safe, about being secure. And so for me, that lead gene was about self-sufficiency, which in my mind at the time required that I compromise on the kind of creative life I wanted to have. And if I were to have that moment again, I would have... I would have chosen differently, Mm -hmm. not because I'm not happy with where I am now. I'm actually very, very happy about where I am now, but I would have liked to have made a decision that wasn't based on fear. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to have made a decision based on power. And what I've learned is that I can actually Mm -hmm. rely on myself to be safe, to be secure, to take care of my, my needs. (laughs) And I didn't know that at the time, I didn't know that I could rely on myself. And I think I could have. And therefore, when I was presented with another decision where it was about financial and corporate success versus now that I'm a fully grown adult and was able to successfully sell a company where my financial independence was no longer in question, I had to make the decision of a lifetime. I had to say to myself, I'm back on that street in 1983 when I made that decision to live a life that was about security and safety and self-sufficiency versus creative independence. Mm. Here I am now at a place in my life 30 years later, more than 30 years later, where I have the same exact circumstances. Mm. I am being presented with an opportunity to finally, because of my fears, not have to worry about self-sufficiency anymore. Mm -hmm. Or I could do something that that would continue to give me even more financial security and even more corporate power. And it was a, it was a, believe it or not, it was a hard decision. I'd like to say it was a no brainer. And I was just like, are you kidding? I'm out of here. It wasn't like that at all. I thought about it really hard, really long time, four months before I actually turned the job down. I went through all of the interviews, all of the machinations with, um, 
a lot of people and really gave it a great deal of thought, but ultimately felt if not now, mm. when, if not now, when am I going to do it in another 10 years? Mm. And then what? And then there'll be something else. I had to jump. I just had to do, I, I spoke with a woman several years ago. I was moderating a, a panel discussion at a conference and the woman that I interviewed had been the former um, chairman. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The CMO of Puma or general manager of Puma. That was her, her job. And um, she had left that big corporate job, that big fat job to start her own business uh, in retail. And she had a specialty food shop in Boston. And I asked her how she did it. How did you, how did you just decide? And I was in the throes of my big decision at that point. And she said that she just had to let go of the trapeze. Mm -hmm. And I had this vision of myself crisscrossed with five different trapeze, mm -hmm. all these different trappings, <laughs> no pun intended, where I didn't even know how to let go. Mm -hmm. I was so caught up in all of the trapeze that I had to literally peel myself off of the bars to be able to finally let go. Mm -hmm. I anticipated there was a very good chance I would just drop mm -hmm never thinking that I might just go to a different place higher and better. And so um, it was enormously liberating. I have no regrets um, other than perhaps waiting as long as I did to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you said that you talked with, with people about uh, this difficult decision. Um, do you think it's, it's, it's very helpful to ask people when they are in a similar situation Uh, for their opinion, or is this something you have to the uh, you have to decide on your very own? I think you have to decide on your on your own. Mm -hmm. I think it is a deeply personal decision. One of the reasons I'm glad that I talked to the people that I did, particularly close friends and family, um, was that most of my close friends and family actually thought I was going to take the job, mm -hmm. and and talking with them about the anxiety that I had about the decision. I think really allowed them to see what a um, big step this was for me not to do it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So let's talk about the project you are probably most known for, uh, Design Matters. Design Matters is the first and longest running podcast about design where you have interviewed over 300 designers and uh, cultural commentators, including Massimo Vignelli, Milton Glaser, Seth Godin, and many, many more. Um, the show has uh, garnered over 5 million downloads per year. Why did you start this project in the first place? Uh, I started the project quite by accident. I was offered an opportunity to do a talk show on an internet radio network, a fledgling internet radio network. They approached me in 2004. I don't even think there were podcasts at that time. Mm. And I thought it would be interesting. I felt that I had slowly but surely over the decade or so that I'd been, or a decade and a half that I'd been in branding, that I had abandoned, all but abandoned my creative work and everything I was doing was commercial. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that I um, was, de I was desperate. I was desperate for anything that I could do that wouldn't be, that wouldn't have commercial value. That would just be for the sheer joy of creative expression. And I got this cold call. It was completely by chance. Mm -hmm. And I decided to pursue it and um, realized that the opportunity to talk to people that I admired, people that I 
really um, respected uh, was the gift of a lifetime (laughs) to be able to talk to people about how they became who they were, who they are, people that I really admired. I mean, I still, I still can't believe that I get to do this. Mm -hmm. What is the, what is the impact of the podcast related work on your other work? Well, it's fundamentally changed my life. Mm -hmm. It has given me access to, um, Opportunities I never in a million years would have thought that I'd have. Even being here at Typo Berlin, um, I never imagined that I'd be invited to mm-hmm. speak on the Typo Berlin stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I've traveled all over the world, talking to people, meeting people, doing interviews, doing presentations. Um, I've had opportunities to go to the White House because of the show. Um And to have really meaningful conversations with people that can then go on and influence and impact the listeners of the podcast. Mm -hmm. There's also um, something else that's happened because I've been doing it now for so long. Some of the people that I've interviewed are no longer with us Mm -hmm. on this planet. And so I feel like I've helped contribute to the legacy of designers like Bill Mogridge or Massimo Vignelli or Hillman Curtis or Bill Drentel. And, and that gives me a great deal of joy. Mm-hmm. For, for those of the listeners uh, who are interested in the history, you mentioned Taibo Berlin, uh, where we are meeting right now. Uh, I think the, the presentation will be available online uh, as a video, I think. So I believe so, because it was live streamed. I, so. I put it in the show notes and yeah. uh, people should really look uh, or watch the video. Uh, so. I think that um, for anybody that is going to watch it, I just need to give you the warning you see at the beginning of the presentation. Not only will you see internet graphics that were made in 2005, you're also going to hear the worst possible sound quality of any podcast on the planet. <laughs> Let's wait for this one. <laughs> no. um, speaking about uh, websites in 2005, uh, do you remember the first uh, website you've ever seen? Oh my goodness! When 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 you, when you typed in a URL for the first. Oh goodness, AOL. Really? AOL.com. <laughs> my brother at the time was a teenager. And we wanted to try to communicate without our parents knowing about it. And he was living at home. So he said, you know, you can email me. And I'm like, what? Email? Mm -hmm. Let's email. And I had to go and get a magazine. I think it was PC magazine. Mm -hmm. And buy the floppy disk that you could put into your computer to download America online. And I downloaded it. Mm -hmm. And, you know. (laughs) Do you remember when when that was? Oh, gosh. When was that? It was in the 90s. Uh, yeah. I, I remember exactly my, my first website. It was in 1998. I was visiting a friend who already had internet. We, weren't, we were pretty late to the game. And uh, I had a favorite, uh, my favorite hip-hop band. They had a, a long CompuServe slash blah, blah, blah URL on, on, the, on, the, on the cover. Uh, and I was wondering what this is. So I yeah. was... The website I visited first was uh, the website of my favorite band at that time. Yeah, so it was AOL, so you want to hear something? 
Yeah, yeah. I still have that address. <laughs> I still have the address. I, it was sentimental because it was my brother's name was in the address, mm-hmm. and so I, I still have it. I still have it. Believe it or not, I it's still crazy. have it. <laughs> I don't really use it, but I still have it. <laughs> crazy. Um, how how do you prepare for an episode? Oh my goodness, I do a lot of research. A mm-hmm. lot of research. Um, hours and hours and hours. It depends on what the background of the person is. Mm-hmm. But if they're a writer, I try to read as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, if they've come out with a new book, I absolutely have to read that mm-hmm. at least once. Um, I try to uh, read other interviews that they've been featured in, mostly because not only do I want to know about them, and that's a good way to find out, but I don't want to ask a lot of the same questions. So I'll, I'll start my questions with something they've already said Mm -hmm. and then go from there to build Mm -hmm. on it. Because what's the point of doing an interview with someone, especially if they're well-known when all you do is ask them the same questions everybody else has asked them. So I try to have a conversation and for me, a great conversation, a great podcast episode is one wherein I ask a question and and I I compare it to um, playing billiards. When you're playing billiards, you not only want to get a ball in the hole, Mm -hmm. You also want to leave the balls, enough balls on the table in right, in the right position to get more balls and more holes. And so that is what I try to do with my research. I try to know enough about the person. So wherever they answer, whatever answer they provide, I have enough knowledge to be able to take that answer and then build a conversation around that answer with other questions. And so, um, that requires having a certain amount of confidence about how much you know about the person. So you feel that it can be an easy, um, an, an easy and, and, um, authentic conversation, an organic conversation. Okay. You see, I'm carefully listening to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for my future. Um, what does, what is your, your favorite episode or, or some, some interviews that you would recommend for somebody who doesn't know your podcast to start with? Uh, well, I, my, one of my favorite episodes is with Chris Ware, the, um, cartoonist, graphic novelist. Um, I think he's a genius and, um, I love that episode. I, his giant book, it's, it's such a, such a under a misstated word, such a, a word that doesn't even describe what it is, but his, his, one of his last projects was a box mm-hmm. called building stories. And in that was, were books, um, a game, posters, all telling this remarkable story about mm-hmm. the people that lived in this building over time. Um, and I devoured it, mm-hmm. every single bit of it. And so we had a really in-depth conversation about that. Um, I love my interview with Amanda Palmer. It's about two and a half times as long as my usual interview are. Where she, where she plays the song at the end? She plays the song at the end. Um, so that was one of my favorite. Um, my interview with Alain de Botton was, mm-hmm. was, uh, one of my favorites, mostly because of how much we talked about what love is and isn't and mm-hmm. relationships that people have in time and memory. Um, so those are three, okay. good three to get started with. And, also Eric Speakerman. Yeah, for those that are local, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> he them. gives me a really hard time in that interview. So <laughs> he always does. He always he does. Always does. <laughs> well, but what would you usually consider an exciting episode? Hmm. Aside of the things you've mentioned in your exams. what makes an exciting episode? Hmm. I don't. They're all exciting. I'm always nervous before an interview because I 
want to get it right. It's live. Anything can and will happen during a live interview. Fortunately, I'm edited. Um, what excites me is when people really um, reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. When they say something, there's always a moment in every interview where I feel a click or I hope for that, where I know that we're experiencing the same reality for a few minutes and I live for those moments. Mm -hmm. And so that gives me the most excitement when I feel like we've, when we're having a real conversation, Mm -hmm. when it's not an interview, it's a conversation. Was it also strange episodes happened? (laughs) I had more strange episodes happen when aside of, The one with Eric, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the first hundred episodes, there were a lot of surprises uh, because they were indeed live, unedited. Um, And so I had lost connections. I had um, people used to call in. I had somebody call in and ask uh, Rick Valicenti out on a date. Um, Those were were more surprising, but not necessarily in a good way. not so much anymore. It's yep. in, I, my, my interviews now are in a very intimate studio where people can just relax. Mm. And I don't like to have those types of sort of surprises yeah. because then it might unnerve them. Do, do you need to edit a lot? Uh, that would be a question for my producer. <laughs> <laughs> He edits them. Um, I generally speak for about an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. Uh, my interviews go about an hour and 15. I do it right before my graduate students have a class mm. so that they could have the opportunity to be in the audience for a live design matters. They get to have a Q&A with my guests directly mm. after the interview so that they have their own private time and then they have a class. Mm. So I have a very limited amount of time. There's, It's not elastic. I can't just go forever mm. um, because of this class that's right afterward. Um, so depending on the length of the interview, you can see how much Curtis has edited Mm -hmm. because they're all 75 minutes of being interviewed. Now, some of that is laughing or making mistakes Mm -hmm. or any number of things. That's interesting. But if it, if if it's been, if it's a 50 minute interview, you know that Curtis hasn't really edited that much. If it's a 35 minute interview, I bored him. (laughs) 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 Um, And after after so many years, uh, it's 12 years now, right? Yes. Uh, where do you get the motivation from? Is still the same motivation as, oh, as it yeah. was at the beginning? I mean, as the show has gotten bigger, it's given me an opportunity to be able to reach out to people outside of the design business. Mm. And as I mentioned in my talk today, the show has gone from a show about designers talking about design mm. to about how creative people design their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so the world is my oyster now. I, I interview musicians and actors and television producers and filmmakers. And this could go on forever mm-hmm. as long as people will listen. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's, let's focus a little bit on how you design your life. Uh, what's your secret for, let's say, a healthy work-life balance? I don't believe in work-life balance. <laughs> I think that it's I knew you would say this. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not typical in that I don't have any children. Mm-hmm. I'm not married. I live by myself. Mm-hmm. And it gives me, my partner is also somebody that spends a lot of time working. 
And we are very fortunate that we both have a similar work ethic. And our work isn't laborious. It's their labors of love. And so we can parallel work for an entire weekend and take breaks and do all sorts of fun things while we're breaking and any number of things. So it's not, for me, it's not a matter of work-life balance because I came to any kind of recognition about my work later in life, later than most people now. I am tremendously grateful that I even have the opportunity to do these things. Mm. So I don't consider it to be something that I begrudge. I'm, I don't know that I'll ever, ever not be grateful. Mm. Okay. My last question already. Um, I love your 10 year plan for a remarkable life. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about that? Please? Well, this is something that, um, I started, um, that I became aware of in uh, Milton Glaser's class at the School of Visual Arts, which is now where I teach. And he, back in 2005, so it was just a few months, I had, I applied for this class while I was having that moment pre-design matters of feeling like I was losing my creative spirit. Mm. I had been writing for print magazine and saw in one of the early issues that I got, one of the writer's issues. So they send out the issues to the writers early. Mm -hmm. I saw an ad for this summer intensive. Mm -hmm. So it was in January of 2005, before I started Design Matters. Mm -hmm. And I was immediately intrigued. Mm -hmm. It was a five-day class in the summer, and it was really specifically designed for people that were mid-career that needed to reboot their creative spirit. Mm -hmm. And I, this was like speaking to me. So I applied and mm -hmm. it was a first come first served. It wasn't an application where you had okay. to talk about how much you wanted to be in the class. It was literally the first 30 people that mm -hmm. signed up got it. Mm -hmm. Because I had the early issue, <laughs> I was the first person that called. <laughs> Awesome. So I got into the class. Yeah. Milton had been teaching it at that point for 40 something years and said quite, quite plain, uh, plainly in the class that this was the most important thing he did in his life. Mm -hmm. And so he took this class and it had a fight club mentality that packed in fight club where what happens stays, what happens in the fight club mm -hmm. stays in the fight club. You're not allowed to talk about it because yeah. it will ruin the experience for other people. And so I took the class and the final exercise of the class was a five year plan to envision your life five years into the future, mm. imagining that you were doing anything your heart desired, mm. anything that you wanted and to write an essay about that experience. And he told us to be very careful because he um, was aware of how powerful this little exercise was. He'd had students over the decades, write him and tell him that everything that they'd written had come true. Mm. And so I put my heart and soul into this essay. I was at that point, I had, by the time the class had started, I, had, I was about three months into design matters. Mm. So I had all sorts of dreams about that. I had all sorts of dreams about any number of things. And um, I wrote this essay within the five years, I would say about 70% of it had come true. And I had, they were big things to me, really, really big things. 
Um, now it's been 12 years and I would say 99% has come true. And he stopped doing the class, unfortunately, several years ago. And so I decided to take that exercise, which I feel was probably the most profound declaration of what I hoped my life could be. Um, I decided to take it and enhance it a little bit. It's now a 10-year plan because I think a lot of young people have a bit more runway than us mid-career people. (laughs) And I also think it takes a while to be able to manifest things. And I'm very much a um, anything worthwhile takes a long time mentality. I have that's my mentality. So I um, now do the exercise with my students. And I was on the Tim Ferriss Show, a great, great podcast that's run by Tim Ferriss. And I talked about it, and it's gone viral. <laughs> it's where Full props to Milton Glaser because it's, it's his. It, yeah, it's his. It's his exercise, mm-hmm. and it changed my life. And I think it's changing a lot of lives. And I have been using it in my classes now for about five years. So I get lots of emails as well from people, my students, that say this changed my life. Mm-hmm. So it's a powerful little exercise. Thank you for changing my life a little bit. Thank you, Thank Thank you so much again for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Creative crew, please prepare for landing. Thank you for listening to Creative FM. Please keep your seatbelts fastened while we taxi to the gates. Feel free to leave your feedback under creative.fm, twitter.com forward slash Gabrovich, or simply via rating on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice.